morning we are continuing through the book of Romans for our sermon series, and we are fast approaching the end of Romans. We are in Romans 15, verses 1 through 7 this morning. You can find that printed on page 8 of your worship folder if you want to follow along and don't have a Bible with you. Romans 15, verses 1 through 7. This is God's word. Let us give it careful attention. We who are strong have an obligation to bear the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but that is as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction and through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. This is God's word. Let us pray. Oh, Father, we ask now that your spirit would once again attend to the proclamation of your word so that if there are those who have no faith, who have yet to trust in Christ, that you would open their hearts, that you would cause them to believe by your mercy and grace so that they might be forgiven of all their unrighteousness and be made right with you for now and all eternity. And for those who know you, those who are your people called by your name, I pray that you would strengthen their, their faith that you would bind them all the closer to Jesus Christ and that they would know the peace that passes human understanding, that their hearts would be warmed and filled once again with the good news of the gospel so that they might praise you in all things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you are familiar at all with the music of Johann Sebastian Bach, you probably know that he would end his manuscripts of his composition with the letters SDG, which stood for Soli Deo Gloria. And we know that Soli Deo Gloria, of course, means in Latin to the glory of God alone. And Bach's aim in all of his music, which he composed, was not personal fame or honor, but the glory of God. And the beauty of each note, the harmony of, of all the parts was composed to the praise of God as creator and Lord. And indeed, it's a fitting little phrase to be fixed at the end of a great work of art, for indeed, all things exist for the glory of God. That's the purpose of this world, that is our purpose, the ultimate end of all things, the glory of God. And those of us in the Reformed and Presbyterian tradition, we know that very well. It's grounded into us from our youth in our catechism, which tells us that man's chief and highest end is to glorify God and enjoy him fully 
forever. Now, while we may know that what, what Bach penned at the end of all of his music was that little phrase, Soli Deo Gloria, SDG, what you probably don't know, or what many of us probably don't know, is what he started each piece of music with. He put the two letters J-J. And they stood for another little Latin phrase. Jesu, Huva, which means Jesus, help me. Ba Bach called out to Christ to help him to achieve that end of glorifying God in his work, in that piece of beautiful art that he was composing. Because he understood that none of us can do what we were made to do. We need help. We need help to glorify God. We need help to achieve the ends to which we were created. We need Jesus' help. Because on our own, we all know this. We are weak. We are fallen sinners. We are corrupt by nature. But Jesus, Jesus is our great helper. Jesus takes away all our sin and shame and guilt and clothes us in his own righteousness so that we can stand before God in a right relationship and praise him and glorify him and worship him as we were made to do. That's what Jesus does. And as the church, we are Jesus' means or way or instrument of fulfilling that great work on earth that he has begun as a helper of the weak. And that's what we learn from the Apostle Paul this morning in our text. And so for those of you that are visiting or new with us this morning, let me set a little context so you know where we are and where we've been. Back at the beginning of Romans chapter 14, we saw that God calls the church to be a welcoming church. That is to say, a church that welcomes one another as believers, despite our weaknesses and strengths, to come together and show grace to one another. We also learned in Romans 14 that the church is to be a place where God's people build one another up in the faith. And Paul is continuing with both those truths now as we come into Romans 15. And he ties them together to teach us that God's people fulfill their ultimate goal by helping each other in their weaknesses as Jesus has helped us in our weaknesses. You see, the big idea of this text is that if Christ has helped you in your weakness, in your failings, he then calls you and equips you to help others in the church in their weaknesses so that we all, with one voice, in great harmony, would glorify God. We need Jesus' help. We need the church. For we all have weaknesses. We all have a need in our faith to be strengthened and encouraged. And so that's what Paul shows us this morning. That this happens in the body of Christ as we walk together in harmony. 
So the first thing that we see in those first two verses is that you, Christian, you are called to help your brother and sisters with their weaknesses. He says, who, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. And we see here Paul continuing to address the situation that he first brought up back in Romans 14. And that was that in the Roman church, and this is true of all churches, there are those who Paul identifies as strong and those who are weak. Now, by that, he doesn't mean some power dynamic. Paul wasn't a Marxist. What he means is, is that there are those who are strong in their faith and those who are still weak in their faith. Now, the strong in the faith, they have had their consciences more fully conformed to the gospel. That is to say, they had a, a fuller understanding of what God's grace is and what it means practically in life. They understood what Christian liberty was all about. They enjoyed God's good gifts in this life. Those who were weak in the faith are those whose consciences are yet to be shaped by the gospel in the same way as the strong. They would insist then that to be a better Christian, a better disciple of Jesus, you had to conform yourself to the opinions, preferences, and practices of men. And in the Roman church, this had to do with the refraining of eating meat and the insistence on observing certain ceremonial days that no longer apply to the church. Now Paul says here that those who are strong in the faith then need to help the weak. In fact, they're obligated to help those who are weak in their faith with that weakness. He particularly addresses the strong in faith. But while he does that, I think the general principle applies to all of us. Because the reality is we all, at times, struggle with our faith, do we not? We all have weaknesses and failures, things that trip us up in our following after Christ. And so the reality is, is there are times we might be strong in our faith and times that we show weakness and we need each other to build one another up to help each other. It's an obligation as members of God's family. So how do we do that? Well, the first way you do that is he says, bear with each other's weaknesses. To bear with doesn't mean just tolerate or put up with or endure the weakness of others. To bear with means to, to support and to carry, to ease the burden of another. It is helping another with the things that oppress them, that wear on their faith, that make them fail to see the fullness of God's mercy and grace. 
those weaknesses and failings, they can be a variety of things. It may be actual sin with which one struggles and cannot seem to get past. It may be a physical hardship, a debilitating illness, or maybe a great sorrow, the loss of a loved one, grief over death. And in this context, of course, Paul has in mind the weakness of the Roman church, of those who had yet failed to see the freedom that is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Their weakness was a, a lack of conformity to God's grace in Christ. And so they thought you had to do all these ceremonies and follow these special restrictive diets to be a better Christian. But the point is simply this, that that weakness is something that makes it hard for you to see Jesus for all he is. A weakness in the faith is something that, that obscures all that Christ is. It erodes at your faith. It, it brings guilt and shame. And so we then are to support one another through those weaknesses. To help one another. To be shaped by the gospel. We're to bring comfort and encouragement to the weary and the struggling in our church. We're to, to help those who are battling sins to see Jesus' victory for them. And we're to call all those who are still struggling with spiritual liberty to be freed from the chains of guilt and shame and legalism. There's a second way we can help each other, though, in our weaknesses. Paul says that you can sacrifice for one another's joy. Look at what he says again in verses 1 and 2. He says, we who are strong have an obligation to bear the failings of the weak and not please ourselves. But what are we to do? He says, but let each of us please his neighbor. Now to please is to satisfy or to bring about the happiness and the joy in another person. And so Paul says here, you, especially you who are strong in your faith, don't seek your own pleasure first and foremost, but first seek the joy and the light and the happiness of your neighbor. And by neighbor, he means your brothers and sisters in the church, particularly those whose faith may not be as strong as yours. Now, when he gives this, he doesn't mean you just be miserable <laughs> because you're sacrificing for the joy of another. He isn't saying that you cannot seek your own joy. In fact, that would be contrary to the rest of Scripture. Furthermore, Paul's words must never be interpreted to mean that you must always bow to the whims, fancies, wishes, and desires of another. In his letter to the Galatians, Paul writes these words. He says, For am I now seeking the approval or the pleasure of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. And so the, the, the pleasing of men is not a principle of the Christian life. We're called to please God. So what does Paul mean then here when he says, please your neighbor? Well, he tells us what he means. He's speaking of pleasing your brothers and sisters in Christ by seeking to maintain 
peace and harmony in the church for the joy of one another. Again, remember the context. At the end of Romans 14, Paul instructs us not to cause one another to stumble over opinions and preferences at the expense of the gospel, at the hindrance of our growth and and following after Jesus. And so he puts a limit then here on pleasing others. He, He says, please them, sacrifice for their joy, for their good, to build them up. That's why you do it. You seek to strengthen their faith. You're seeking to grow them in their knowledge of the gospel and of Christ so that they might be shaped by him, that their consciences might be informed of the liberty of God's grace. And yes, sometimes that is going to take sacrifice. Sometimes that means there are certain things, as we saw last week, that for the sake of the gospel, I will set aside in this particular moment so that I might strengthen the faith of my weaker brother or sister. Sometimes I'll lay aside my liberty for others. And when we do that, we help one another. We support one another through our weaknesses. And so together then, the whole strength, the whole whole church is strengthened in Christ. You know, if you have a weakness in your physical body, it certainly can hinder the rest of your body, right? I mean, if you have a bad knee, it affects the way you walk. And eventually, it's probably going to start hurting your back and cause all sorts of other problems. You have to address the weakness. You have to go to maybe physical therapy or maybe you need surgery. You've got to take care of that problem to strengthen the whole body. Something must be done. And that is what Paul is after here. He wants you to see that as a disciple of Jesus Christ, you have an obligation to heal those who are struggling and failing in their weaknesses by lifting them up and sacrificing for their joy. But here's a question. Why should you do that? I mean, why look to the needs and the weaknesses of others before looking to your own needs? And after all, we live in a world where we're told that we should seek our own good before the good of others. We need to, to care about ourselves before we care about others. Now, it doesn't mean that that isn't important at all. Of course, we shouldn't neglect in the caring of ourselves. But you need to realize that this world is a very selfish world in which we live. And it preaches to us every single day a gospel of self-fulfillment. Even if it means wounding the joy and happiness of another. Or of denying the truth that God has written into the world and given us in his word. Our sinful natures are drawn to that. We are so tempted to be gods unto ourselves, to be shaped and molded by our own desires. And even as Christians, we are so easily affected by this. Let me give you an example. And you can can look this up. Research has been done on it about why do people leave churches and go to other churches? And you know what the number one answer is? 
I wish it was, well, we felt called there. We wanted to strengthen that church to build it up. No, it wasn't that at all. You know what the answer is? I didn't feel like my needs were being met. I didn't feel like my needs were being fulfilled. Now, how does that square with what Paul is telling us here? I mean, here what he's telling us is you have a duty, an obligation to help each other in your weakness. So the question that comes up then is, well, how can I help others with their failings when my own heart is so tempted and prone to selfishness? That's my weakness. That's our weakness. How do we help one another when we really want to help ourselves? Can we even fulfill this obligation that Paul is laying out? Is it just an impossible standard, a a dream world that really can't exist? No, it's a real world. It really can happen. We can help one another in our weaknesses. And we can do that because of Jesus. Because Jesus is our great help. That's the second thing we see here is that Jesus helped us. He helped you in your weakness so that you can help others. Verse 3, for Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Paul's pointing us back again to Christ our Savior. Jesus is the, the supreme example of the strong helping the weak of seeking them and their needs first before their own. As John Murray puts it so well, he says it is noteworthy how the apostle adduces the example of Christ in his most transcendent accomplishments in order to commend the most practical of duties. No, Jesus did not please himself. And so this duty or this obligation to bear with the weak did not come simply from the pen of the Apostle Paul. It means that if you are a follower of Christ, it came from the life of Jesus Christ, your Savior. Jesus did not selfishly seek his own desires, his own needs, his own good, but he gave himself up for the good of those whom he would save. Jesus did not grow frustrated with the weak faith of his disciples as they sailed across the Sea of Galilee in a storm, but instead he calmed the water and the wind in their fears. Jesus did not grow angry with Peter for denying him during his trial, but he gently restored him back to faith. Jesus did not abandon his disciples who could not stay awake in the garden but for a moment to pray with him before he went to the cross. And he prayed for their strength, that God would be with them in their weakness. Jesus did not bow to Satan during his temptation in the wilderness. Though he could have easily pleased himself, he had the power to do so, even though he was starving and weakened after a 40-day fasting No, he resisted every temptation of the devil. He denied himself so that he could fulfill his role as the Messiah who would save his people from their sins. And Jesus did not send away 
the hungry multitude of thousands. But he saw their need, and he served them by multiplying a boy's meager meal. Yes, Jesus helped. He helped his people in their weakness when they could not help themselves. Jesus is the great helper of the helpless. Paul points us to a particular aspect of Jesus' sacrificial selflessness in verse 3 by quoting from Psalm 69. Now all the Psalms point us to Christ. They call us to see him, to know him, and to worship him. But uh, there are particular psalms we call messianic psalms because they refer specifically to Christ and his redeeming work on the cross. And Psalm 69 is one of them. It is full of references to Jesus Christ. And Paul quotes from one of those, from verse 9, which says, For zeal of, for your house has consumed me. And the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. This is God the Son addressing God the Father. And of course, the house that he is speaking of is God's house. It is his people, his church. All those who are adopted into God's family through the grace and mercy of the gospel. And Jesus says then, I had a zeal. I have a zeal, a burning, all-consuming zeal. Not for my own glory, but for the salvation of those who belong to you. Those who are weak and broken and wounded in their sin and not deserving of salvation. And so what I will do then is bear those reproaches that they have brought against you so that they might be saved and snatched from their weakness. A reproach is specifically, it's, a, it's an unjust complaint hurled at another in spite and in hatred. Our sins are reproaches to God. We defy his holiness, his truth. When we break his law, we revile his authority as our creator and we mock his justice. A spiritual reproach, our sin then, is like spitting in the face of God himself. And Jesus said, I'll take that. I'll bear those reproaches. I am willing to do that for those who cannot do it themselves. I will save them from their weakness. Because there was no way on earth or in heaven that in our weakness we could ever fully pay back the penalty of our sins. But the Lord, the Lord Jesus, is our great helper, and he helps us in our weakness. And for that, we can help others in theirs. Well, how do you do that then? How do you help those who are weak in faith? How do you seek their joy? How do you bear them up when they are struggling? How do you help another you do it by pointing them back to the one who can help them in every weakness. You do that by bringing them back to Christ, our great helper. And where do we meet him who is our help? We do it in his word, in prayer, in worship, 
in the observance of the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. We do it in the fellowship that we enjoy with one another. In other words, in those ordinary means, that those ordinary ways of God's grace that he has given us in the church. And Paul mentions two of them here that we look at in closing. And so you, Christian, you are called to help your brethren in their weakness because Jesus helped you in yours, and you do it simply through his word and through prayer. That's what Paul talks about in the text. Through word and prayer, we build harmony together that glorifies God and so fulfills the end to which we are called. Notice again verse 4. For whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. He is speaking here of the Bible, of the scriptures. Because the Bible, both the Old and the New Testaments, is written for our instruction to guide us, to teach us, to point us to Christ and how we can be more like him through the gospel. There is not one part of the Bible that is unprofitable for your spiritual well-being. So read it all, know it all, study it all. Paul says that through endurance and encouragement, the word of God, what does it do? It produces hope. Now, by endurance, he means faithful perseverance, continuing the in the faith through thick and thin, uh, the good times and the bad times, ever pursuing Christ. For the word reveals Jesus, who is the living word. And it does it for our encouragement in the gospel. From Genesis to Revelation, we see who Jesus is and what Jesus does for his people. He is the creator of Genesis. Jesus is the Passover lamb of Exodus. He is the high priest of Leviticus. Jesus is the living water in the desert that we see in the book of Numbers. He is the giver of the law. Jesus is the better Joshua, David, the better deliverer than Moses. He is promise and fulfillment, the one of whom the Psalms sing, the one of whom the prophets predicted. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And when you see him in the scriptures, as they are read and preached and believed and understood, it will, it will strengthen your heart and fill it with real everlasting hope. Because God's word never brings to itself void. It always fulfills what God intends for it to fulfill. And so you help each other in your weakness, not through your own word or your own strength or your own ideas or what you might think is truth, but through the truth, through the word, the written word of God. And so read it together, study it together, gather together on the Lord's day to hear it proclaimed. Because the word will point you to Christ, who is your great help. And secondly, Paul says you can help one another through prayer. So what does prayer do? May the God of endurance, this is Paul's prayer for the Roman church. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Jesus Christ. 
So the word of God, through endurance and encouragement, produces hope. And prayer to God petitions the God of endurance and encouragement to grant harmony or unity. God is the source, then, of our endurance and encouragement. We are instructed of it in his word, and it comes ultimately from him. He is the author of it. And so we pray to him, then, that he would grant us this faithfulness to endure, to press on in our faith, to keep following after Jesus, our helper, and to encourage us, that God would encourage us to lift each other out of our weaknesses. I mean, prayer is especially effective when it comes to this obligation, this duty that Paul is talking about back in verse 1. I mean, how do you, if you are strong in your faith, bear the failings of the weak? Well, you certainly can pray for them. You can always pray for them. You know, it's, it's difficult to be annoyed and frustrated and aloof regarding the weaknesses that you see in others if you're praying that God would help them. And we, when we do pray for one another, look what happens. Paul says God grants harmony. And what does that harmony do? With one voice, it glorifies God. Verse 6 That together, so you pray for one another, that together, you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. One unified voice of God's people glorifying Him. And that takes us back to where we started. What's your purpose? What's your highest end? The glory of God, to glorify him and enjoy him forever. That's why every piece of music Bach composed was dedicated to the glory of God. He wanted God to be honored and praised above all things. But for that to happen, there needs to be help. There needs to be the great helper, Jesus Christ. For Christ not only helped Bach in writing a piece of music, but it helps every one of us as we look to support the weaknesses of others, even the greatest of struggles and the most tragic of failures. And we are helped more and more by Jesus so that we might help others. By bearing one another's weaknesses, we're moving ever onwards then towards that great ends for which we we were made the glory of God one people of God, one harmonious voice, praising him forever. And this is what that means for you right now. When you are part of a church where God's people do help one another, as Paul tells us we're supposed to here in this text, with our weaknesses and failures, and we bring one another and point one another back to Jesus, our great helper, And that unites us together in one voice that glorifies God. It means that right now, as we glorify God together, as one church united, we taste a little bit of that glory of heaven for which we hope. You taste that hope that is coming that day when none of us will struggle with weaknesses or failures ever 
again. A time when every tear is wiped away from eyes and death is no more and there'll be no more mourning and crying, no more failings, no more falling, no more pain and suffering, no more weakness. For in Christ, on that day, all your cares and burdens and troubles and sin, all that weakness will be no more. For we will be nourished and fully strengthened and complete in Jesus Christ. And boy, the world needs to see that. It needs to see that Christ is the great helper. And you know what? They can. They can when they look into the doors of a church where they help one another as God's people with our struggles and our failings and our weaknesses by pointing each other to Christ, our helper. And so we must be that welcoming church that builds one another up and helps one another in Christ. And so, as Paul ends in verse 7, welcome one another as Christ welcomed you for the glory of God. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you again for your word.